Today's scripture reading is 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned to the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, last week, we looked at the theme Um, the misery of sin and the mercy of God. And the idea that we wanted to remember there and have pressed upon our hearts is that sin is great, but mercy is more. That mercy is greater, and it is my prayer that you went away from last week's message, not discouraged about your sin, but more encouraged and thankful for God's mercy. We wanted the emphasis to be upon the mercy. I know many of us didn't get that, but that is the goal, the emphasis to be upon the mercy. And in case I didn't make the emphasis enough, this week's message is all about God's mercy. We sing a song written by the Gettys. The words say, What riches of kindness he lavished on us His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Listen, beloved. The greatness of God's mercy cannot be exaggerated. The wideness of his mercy is not overstated this morning. God looks upon the sad, compromised, sinful, and even miserable state of his creation and is moved in compassion. Loving, compassionate mercy. When you read John 3.16 and how God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. The question that should move you is why? Why did God send Jesus into the world? He sent Jesus because God is compassionate. He sent a Savior because he is merciful and doesn't want any to be lost, but wants us all to come to know Jesus, to know his mercy, and therefore to be saved. Our, apostle, our brother, Apostle Paul, he understood this in a very personal way, as we all should. We recite it most Sunday mornings here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says, concerning himself, even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was poured out to me abundantly along with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, so here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And I won't have you quote it this morning. I'll read it for you, though I know you could. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy. Twice he says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Mercy is what sinners receive because mercy is what sinners need, beloved. And Paul knew himself to be a sinner, the worst. And that's just because he hadn't met me. The worst. He understood himself to be unworthy. Do you this morning? He understood himself to be an example. Why? Because even though he considered himself the worst of sinners, he knew that the rest of us was not far off. And if anybody's going to get saved, it is because God is going to show mercy. Being saved is the, being the recipient of God's mercy. It is our only hope, beloved. It is our only hope. And hope is based in and upon the mercy of God. 
Unless God is merciful, there is no salvation. And unless God is merciful, beloved, there is no hope. No hope. No hope. And if we understand this, we understand, beloved, that salvation is not just something God did. Salvation is what God does. Every single moment of every day. This is why Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 and 23 reminds us and tells us that his mercies are new every morning. Every day. Every day. God's mercy is with us in every way. Every way. Not just getting you saved, but keeping you there. Your sins and my sins didn't stop. When we said, Lord Jesus, save us. Mercy every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Reminding us that your sins are great, but his mercy is more. His mercy is more. God's mercy is all around us, beloved. His mercy protects and provides. His mercy sustains and supplies. This is what we see throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. The sustaining and supplying mercy, the protecting and providing mercy of God. This is what we discover and see in our text this morning. Second Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. It just exudes the mercies of God. I mean, it shouts the mercies of God. It, it just proclaims the ministry of Elisha and the fact that his ministry in all its aspects was a ministry of mercy. And it just shouts it, screams it. I hope we hear it this morning. Is mercy upon mercy upon mercy. It begins with Elisha once again in the home of the Shunammite woman. Now this, as we have said before, was apparently a frequent occurrence that Elisha had spent many days, many days in the hospitality of this family. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible reminds us that she had had her husband build out an Airbnb, especially for Elisha. That the man of God, when he came, would be well taken care of. And you might recall that 
She was a barren woman, and yet God had been favorable to her and that he had given her a son. And even then, after he had given her the son, when the son had suddenly became ill and the son died, God was merciful in raising her son back to life. So this is the type of relationship that Elisha has with this Shunammite woman and her family. It's an intimate relationship. It is a frequent relationship. Her hospitality had been greatly appreciated. And the relationship had produced grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And her faithfulness and service to the man of God was going to be rewarded with another mercy, an amazing mercy. And we see how in a time of distress, she experienced once again the compassionate mercy of God. For we see in our text warning mercy. The warning mercies of God. Notice what it says in verse 1. Now, Elijah had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. Once again, once again, there was a famine in the land. And, and this time Elijah is saying clearly that this famine is coming from the Lord. That the Lord is sending a famine upon the land of Israel. And now famine in First and Second Kings, as, as we have often seen, is a means of God's judgment. And this time here, beloved, is no different. The judgment of God is coming upon Israel. And the judgment is going to last for seven years. That there would be food shortages. In the land for seven years. And who would be spared? Who would be spared? Notice, notice the mercy of God. God gave her a warning that judgment was coming. He gave her a warning that judgment was coming. And this is a mercy, beloved, that God gives that I don't think that we consider enough. And that is the mercy of God is that in this sense, he always gives warning. God always gives his people warning. God's judgment is not capricious. It's not arbitrary. God's, his anger is not without warning. He's not like you and me. He's not like that. You know, he doesn't just fly off the handle. 
He doesn't just get mad out of nowhere. He is righteous in his anger, and he warns of his judgment. You know, he's not like me. You know, the kid not, we're not walking around like my kids are walking around saying, oh, what's wrong with daddy? What do we do? It's not like us, beloved. This is not the case with God. God's people always knew what the problem was. They always knew what the problem was. It's not like my wife. Who asked me freaking, what's wrong with you? <laughs> when God caught Noah, Noah knew what the problem was. The people knew what the problem was. When God went to Lot and Sodom, Lot knew what the problem was. The people of Sodom knew what the problem was. The angel came to Lot in Genesis 19 and 14 and says, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. You just received a mercy. Warning mercies. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh knew what the problem was. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, I'm about to show you a mercy. The Lord is coming. You better let his people go. This is the Lord God, beloved, when God sent Jonah to the Ninevites. Jonah knew what the problem was. The Ninevites knew what the problem was. And the Bible says in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4 that for 40 days, Jonah preached, the judgment of God is coming, is coming, is coming. This is the faithfulness of God. And it is seen in his warning mercies. But you know what's even more great about this mercy of God is that he doesn't just give the warnings, but he also gives the way of escape. He also gives the way of escape. The warnings are not just the warn of judgment, but in mercy, God also provides a way out. She was not only told that judgment was coming, she was told how long it was coming and that she needed to flee to where there was safety, where there would be deliverance. That's what God does. He says, Noah, the judgment is coming, but I want you to build an ark. Because I'm providing a way. Says he goes to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, judgment is coming. But if you just let God's people go, the Lord might relent. 
He goes to Lot. And he says, Lot, the judgment is coming upon the city. And Lot said, Lord, if I can just find a few. He said, no. No. Judgment is coming. But I provided you a way. He says to Jonah and the Ninevites, judgment is coming upon Nineveh. But if you would relent and repent, God would be merciful. The mercy of God is seen in God giving warnings and provides means in the midst of those warnings for deliverance. This is the story throughout the scriptures, beloved. This is the redemptive story that is building throughout the scriptures, that the judgment of God is coming upon the world, but God in his mercy is providing a way of escape. And we see this come to full fruition in the coming of Jesus. For you know who Jesus is, beloved? Jesus is both the warning and the way. He is coming with destruction and deliverance. John chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible says, Whoever believes concerning Jesus in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light. That is the judgment. Christ has come into the world as a warning that judgment is coming, that you already stand condemned Because you'd rather walk in the darkness than in the light. But it is not just the warning. Jesus comes also as the way. In John 14 and 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father. No one escapes judgment. No one enters into the ark. No one enters into safety except they come by me. And I'm here because God is merciful. These are the warnings, beloved. These are the warnings of judgment that are all throughout the Bible. And so too is the mercy of God in providing a way of escape. And here is the thing to remember, beloved. God owes no one mercy. This is the amazing thing about this. God doesn't owe anyone a warning. He didn't owe that Shudamite woman a warning. He didn't owe her a way of escape. 
God doesn't owe anyone patience. He doesn't owe anyone a way out. This is the greatness of God's mercy in that he warns before wrath. How great is it, beloved? How great is it that he provides a way of escape? It is not owed. That's why it's called mercy. It is not deserved. That's why it is called mercy. Why? Why the Shunammite woman? I got a better question. Why you this morning? Why me this morning? You know what God says? When you ask the question why, God says, listen, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it's not you willing it. It's not you wanting it. It's not you earning it. It's not you desiring it. It is not you deserving it. But it is God who shows mercy. God's mercy is not because you deserve it, beloved. God's mercy is because you don't. That's why he's merciful. That's why he's compassionate. That's why he's good. And that's why he's greatly to be praised. And that's why that's why we see our next mercy, which is rehearsing mercies. Rehearsing mercies. This is, this is absolutely amazing, beloved. Absolutely amazing. And after God demonstrates his mercy in the warning, we see Gehazi and the king rehearsing the great mercies of God. This is a mercy in and of itself. In verse 4, it says, The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and he said to him, Tell me about all the great things Elijah has done. Now, beloved, the Shunammite woman has been gone for seven years. The famine has been across Israel for seven years. And when she had returned after those seven years, apparently her land and her home had been confiscated. And the only recourse that she had, as far as she was concerned, was to go to the king and ask him to reinstate her property and her land. 
But as the Shudamite woman was making her way to the king, the text gives us some insight into what the king was doing. The king was meeting with Elijah's servant, Gehazi. While the Shudamite woman was making her way to the king's place, the king was meeting with Elijah's servant, and he was asking Elijah's servant if he could rehearse for him the great deeds and miracles of Elisha. Now remember, miracles are acts of God's mercy. And we know that Elijah, because he had a miracle ministry that was unsurpassed by anyone but Jesus, Elijah's miracle ministry was actually a ministry of mercy. So what the king wanted to know, what the king wanted to know, he wanted to know the power behind the man of God. He wanted to know the power behind the man of God. He wanted to know about the mercies of God. Because the power behind any man or woman of God is the mercy of God. The power behind Noah was the mercy of God. Ask Abraham and Sarah what strengthened them is the mercy of God. What brought Joseph from the pit to the prison and back to the palace was the mercy of God. What led Moses through the desert into Egypt and back through the desert was nothing but the mercy of God. Ask David, ask Esther, what got them through? It was the mercy of God. Ask Peter, what lifted Peter up after he had been dejected? It was the mercy of God. You can ask the apostle Paul this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. How was it that he was the disciple, an unlikely disciple? How was it that he was an apostle, the unlikeliest and unworthiest of the apostles? And he knew it because of the mercy of God. But you don't need to go ask Noah, and you don't need to go ask David or Esther or Peter or Paul. You can ask me this morning. You can ask me this morning because I get asked frequently. I get asked frequently, how is it that you became a pastor? And I have to think, and I think about all the mistakes that I've made. And I think about all the pitfalls that I have missed. And I think about all the people who have helped me and encouraged me along the way. And I say, if it had not been for the mercy of God, or as the psalmist says in Psalm 124 and verse 1, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, these things would not be, beloved. This is, listen, this was probably the easiest assignment that Gehazi had ever had. 
rehearse for you the mercies of God? Rehearse for you the great things that Elijah has done? And beloved, no doubt, no doubt, there were many to choose from. Even beyond the ones that have been recorded in the scriptures. Many to choose from. Second Kings chapter 4, he probably told them about the, the widow who received oil. And chapter Kings chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 4, he, he probably told them how Elijah purified the poisonous soup. In 2 Kings chapter 5, he probably told the king how Elijah healed Naaman of his leprosy. In 2 Kings chapter 6, he probably told him how Elijah floated an axe head. And the list would go on and on and on and on. I don't know all that he told him. But I do know that he had to tell. And he had a lot to tell. Why? Because those who know, tell. Those who know, tell. What do you know this morning? Listen to me. Listen to what the psalmist says. Psalm 71 and 15. I will tell you of his righteous acts. And I will rehearse his wonderful deeds. But I don't know the number. It is past my understanding. It is past my knowledge. I don't know how many there is, but I can give you a list of a few. There's salvation. There's sins forgiven. There's the promise of heaven. There's a community and church of the believers. There is hope in a hopeless world. There is a blessing of the worship of the saints. There is friendship in the Lord. There are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is the Bible in your hand as the word of God. There is sound mind this morning to lift your minds up and worship Christ. It's like the preacher, old preacher would say, when I think about the Lord and all that he's done for me, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord and all that he's done for me, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid ground, I, my soul has to shout, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. For all that the Lord has done for me. This is an easy assignment this morning, beloved. It's not hard. It's not hard. And what a mercy it is that you can rehearse the mercies of God this morning. You can do it just as Gehazi did it. And Gehazi rehearsed many mercies of God that day. But the one that stood out the most, the one that stood out the most was the one he remembered best, how Elijah had restored that Shudamite woman's son back to life, pointing to the fact that God is the God of restoring mercy. Just as 
Gehazi was rehearsing the mercies of God to the king. He was telling him about the Shudamite woman. Suddenly, beloved, the Bible says that the Shudamite woman walked in the place. And in chapter 8 and verse 6, the Bible says that the king asked the woman, what was this all about? And she told him. And then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, give back everything that belonged to her. Restore to her everything that had belonged to her including all the income from her land from the day she left the country until now. Beloved, listen. This is the point of it all. Okay? All that other stuff I've been saying is just background. Okay? All, everything else we've been talking about is just the introduction. This is the point of the text. This is where it is going. This is where all things is going. God is merciful in restoring his people. This is not only the message of 2 Kings chapter 8, 1 through 6, but this is the message of the word of God. The overriding message of the scriptures, the overriding promise of God in the scripture is that God, God promises to restore. He is restoring. Paradise lost is going to give way to paradise regained. That's the point. That's the point. And as Gehazi was rehearsing these great deeds, these deeds of Elisha, even raising the sun back to life, this woman walked in. Beloved, listen, here is... Here is Gehazi standing up before the king preaching and suddenly confirmation of the word walked in. I never had that happen to me before. I'm waiting. It's like preaching about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and suddenly Lazarus walked in. It's like what happened in Acts chapter 12 when they were praying for Peter to be released from prison and all of a sudden there came a knock at the door and Peter was standing there. Here was the Shudamite woman as living proof of the great mercies of God. God's ability to save. God's willingness to deliver. Showing forth the wideness of his mercy and the greatness of his love, beloved. But even more than that, even more than that, it, it is mercy in response to mercy. You hear what I'm saying? Hearing about the mercies of God moved the king to be merciful. How do you respond to the mercies of God? 
Well, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, the Bible tells us that we ought to be merciful as God has been merciful. Those who receive the mercies of God are merciful people. Those who rehearse the mercies of God ought to be merciful people. And the king, having heard of the restoring mercy of God, moved into restoring mercy. Because restoration is the point. It's always the point. This is what God is doing. And so you read through this text and you read, read it again. How many times, how many times does the scriptures bring up the idea of restore? Restored. Restore. Restored. Because this is the point, that God is a God of restoration. Listen, the Bible is filled with a lot of reeds. Okay? It's filled with a lot of reeds. Redeem. Reconcile. Revive. Renew. Resurrection. Here's a most important one for you this morning, beloved. Restore. Restore means to bring back to a state of health or of good and proper use, a proper condition, or even better than it was before. And we speak about restoring marriages and Restoring families, restoring bodies, restoring relationships, and restoring communities, restoring houses, restoring lives. And these are all good, beloved. These are all good. But the ultimate goal of God is the restoration of creation. That's the ultimate goal. This is what we're talking about here this morning. This is, what, this is what we're talking about here this morning. Yes, yeah, she got her home restored. Yes, yeah, she got her land restored. But more than those things, she is teaching us that God is the God who restores. And the ultimate goal of God, listen to me this morning, the ultimate goal of God is not the restoration of your job. The ultimate goal of God is not the restoration of your family. The ultimate goal of God is not the restoration of your body. If those things happen, praise him for his mercy. But that is not God's ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is the restoration of creation. All things, all things, houses, Bodies and even families may be restored or they may not in this life. But there is one thing that God has guaranteed that he is going to restore, and that is creation. He's bringing it all back. He's making it all new. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, and we're familiar with us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is part of this new creation, that you have been brought into this new creation. 
this recreation. Old things have passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come and the new is coming, beloved. The new is coming. Because recreation is God's point and God's goal. It's what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because God is restoring us. It's what he does. It's what he does. He is the God of restoration. Restoration was a prayer of David, wasn't it, in Psalm 50. 1 and verse 12, after he fell into sin, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me again with a willing spirit. Restoration is what God gives to the broken. In Hosea chapter 6 and, and verse 1, come, he says, let's return to the Lord for he has torn us that, we, that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. That's what he does. He restores that which he strikes down, beloved, he binds up. That which he tears down, he heals up. And what he restores, don't miss this, what he restores is better than the first. He's not bringing it back to where it was. He's making it better than the first. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 12, the Bible says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoner of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Double. Why? Because he doesn't just bring it to where it was before, but he is making it better. This is the great promise of God. Acts chapter 3 and verse 21. They speaking of Jesus, heaven must receive him until the time comes from God to restore everything. Everything. That is the point. Everything is going to be restored. When Christ comes, you might be able to hear the whinings singing. Restoration has finally come. I've been restored back to my place in God. What would I know about being restored if I hadn't lost my place? What would I know about mercy if I hadn't gotten out of grace? Beloved, it is not the restoration of my place back in Christ. Mm -mm. It is much bigger than that. It is the restoration of all things. This is the promise of God. Everything in Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, and he will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Listen, beloved. There are no old things in heaven. It's all new. Heaven got that new car smell. 
You think about that the next time you smell that. That's new. That's how heaven's going to smell. Brand spanking new. I like that. Let's pray.